Today, we talk female chef news for days, firing your employees for bezeling $600,000 in cash, stealing plates, selling plates at your restaurant, not stealing, and Google buying Chelsea Market. Welcome to the show, folks. My name is Justin Kana. This is episode 51 of The Emulsion. If you're new here, this is a show where I talk all about the news stories and industry happenings that matter to me as I navigate my career as a professional chef. Got to give a shout out to our sponsor first. That is you guys. That's right. I do this show because it's a show that I would have wanted to listen to when I was in culinary school, when I was just starting out. I'm not working at a fine dining restaurant at the moment, but I still have an interest in what's happening. So I take these stories, these industry happenings, and I give you the scoop, plus my opinion uh, as a kind of veteran of the industry, and hopefully we can all come away a little bit more knowledgeable than when we started. I stream the recordings of this show live on YouTube if you're interested in getting involved in the conversation. Otherwise, you can tweet at me at Justin underscore Kana and hashtag The Emulsion so I can find you and your tweets. And, you know, if you want to sponsor this show, you can do that. Uh, you can check that out on patreon.com slash Justin I have one other second shameless plug here. I just sent out the first edition of Justin's List last week. It is a kind of email newsletter. It's a compendium of all of my favorite things in cooking and lifestyle and travel uh, all across the internet. If you're signed up already, I would love to know what you thought of the first uh, issue that I sent out last week and, you know, what you enjoyed about it. I think it might be a bi-weekly newsletter for me just to kind of grow that list. Um, If you're interested in signing up, I include discounted gear that I find or stuff that I get offered to as an affiliate with some of the companies that I work with, articles that I'm enjoying or the ones that I've covered on this show, the Emulsion Podcast, new videos that I've released, and just some solid like inspiration, whether it's photos or quotes or dishes or anything to kind of give you some good stuff in your inbox. I know there's a lot of junk uh, out there. It, I, I want to bring you some value. I don't want it to be spammy at all. I just want it to be filled with great stuff for you every single time you get a notification from me. So if you want to sign up for that, go ahead and check out justincona.com slash newsletter, and you can take it from there. Today's beverage, I wish this was a sponsored piece. I know, I know, usually I'm so good at aeropressing my coffee, but uh, this is a... Uh, first try on Starbucks's Blonde Roast Espresso. Um, I was just at the store, and and I are having date night tonight, so I was getting stuff for that. And uh, across the street is a Starbucks. I knew I was going to kind of be rushing to get this show started, so... Oh, it's so hot. Um, so I knew I was going to be rushing to get this show started, so I, I, I stopped. I made a pit stop at, at the old Bucks. Although, it would be an interesting sponsor to have for the show because they are technically a local Seattle business. It's not that bad. It's really not that bad. If you haven't had the Starbucks blonde espresso yet, it's not bad. Um, I got I got it as an Americano um, because I'm currently kind of obsessed with those at the moment. So the first story today comes from some headlines that I've been seeing kind of pop up all over the place in, in, in my news feed involving female chefs. So the first part of the show today is going to kind of be more or less about that. And I, I I know, I know there's a ton of dudes that listen to this show. Uh, YouTube actually tells me that 94% of my audience is male. Uh, and we're going to get into that part in a little bit of a second. 
uh, why that matters, but this isn't me alienating all women. I would actually love for the scales to tip in the future, like to see 70-30 or 60-40 or 50-50, but the, the matter is... The fact of the matter is I talk uh, I talk about what I know, right? And what I know is how to be a dude in a fine dining kitchen. And that's what leads me to my first disclaimer before I get into these stories. I am 100% team human, right? Like we went through times at the last restaurant where I worked where it was like 30% female. Uh, and in the front of house, it was almost 70% female. So I don't have any issues working with women, respecting women. I would even sit in meetings where we would discuss the fact that it was a better kitchen environment when there was at least... Uh, a woman in the kitchen as opposed to this kind of frat house feeling environment when it was all guys. So why all of these stories involving women? Women. Well, let's get into the first one. Uh, Dominique Crenn of San Francisco fame is going to partner with Resi, the popular uh, table booking app, to host an all-female chef dinner in San Francisco. So it's going to be called the Women of Food series. The first event is March 27th, and the, quote, all-star lineup of culinary talents, end quote, includes Nancy Silverton, Nina Compton, and April Bloomfield. Uh, Chef Kren saying, quote, there are thousands of female chefs out there, and I want the press to start talking about them because they are out there. So it's natural for us to do this series, end quote. Uh, the article that I linked up in the show notes says, quote, each chef will join her in her in her kitchen for one night only, serving up some of their own signature dishes as well as new creations for the multi-course dinner at $250 per person. There will also be varying specialty Kettle One vodka cocktails each evening created by a number of San Francisco's top female mixologists, end quote. Kren also saying, quote, we are in a time right now that needs to be looked at and rebalanced. It's not about women having more power than men. It's just about balance, end quote. So I'm in two camps with this story. One, yes, it's very inspiring to see like-minded people coming together for a cause that they believe in. I'm all for that. And for they for them to be hosting something that's unique, that's advocating for equality, um, I see us having to go through a number of these moments of kind of heavy isolation for that for that for there to feel like there's a tip in the scales in the other direction, right? Like I see it as a smart move socially to do this event now. There is literally no better time than right now to host an event like this when it's a topic that's on everybody's mind. Like I said, there's been a lot of headlines uh, showing up, in, not just on this show that we've talked about, but uh, just in general, in the general societal consensus that says this is a good idea. But the other part of me is, is frustrated because I come from a place that doesn't see it like that. And I know that I may or may not be a minority in this camp. Like I go to Renee Erickson's spot here in Seattle, not because I want to specifically support a female chef. I don't seek out doing that, but her oyster bar is fun to sit at, right? Like, I didn't go to Massimo Boturo's place in Italy because he's a man, and I didn't want to go to the female-run Osteria down the street. I went there because he's talented and his food is good, right? Like, I grew up personally with divorced parents, and I, I, I spent my childhood 95% with my mom and my little sister, so I feel 100% comfortable around women. So if anything, it's just frustrating for me to see this kind of isolated event planning because it's not promoting equality, right? It's championing, it's championing this us versus them mentality, and it assumes that men have no empathy or desire to work with women, so the only place that they can go to feel safe is with each other, right? So I have no doubt that we will move on from this and there will be a time when there are hosted events around other causes where the merit will be based on influence and what that person can bring to the table instead of kind of what gender are you. And I've ranted on this before a couple episodes back. It was maybe like episodes 20 something. 
And I did get some backlash, but I'm 100% firm on my stance that there's no better time to be alive than right now, to be to, to do whatever you want to do. There's so much less friction involved, and if you want to crush it, there's so much less stuff holding you back, male or female. Make great stuff. Be a good person, right? Like, my other biggest thing is to play to your strengths, right? Like, if you know you aren't good at all of these things that make traditional male chefs good at what they do, don't try to fit into that mold, right? Be a chef, but be different. I'm no doubt getting a ton of hate from people that I've worked with in the past because I'm making content online. Not to say it's all bad, but there's also support, right? But my point is no one is 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 no one is doing content like this. I had a I had a comment uh from one of you guys the other day that was like you're the only YouTuber I know who's covering this kind of stuff. And I don't want the traditional route. I I want to look different and I'm I I've accepted it. So, yes, I still call myself a chef, but I do content and I cook and that's just how it is and I'm constantly evolving. There's actually talk of me getting involved with a restaurant project later this year. So like what is that going to look like? Like we need to stop over generalizing and it, I know it's our natural response. Uh, for our brains to create these boxes and say chef equals male, white, French, or American, or whatever you say, or restaurant equals lots of seats and big menu or a la carte or tasting menu, right? But the fact of the matter is every single person is different and should be celebrated as such, right? Like, would I want a ticket to this event? Like, yeah, yes, absolutely yes. It sounds like a great combination of food. Dominique Krenn's, like, high-end execution and April Bloomfield's kind of sloppy but hearty food and Nancy Silverton's fresh Italian food. It, it would be a really good menu if they can uh, work it out the, together. Do you know what I mean? But that's my that's my spiel. If you guys have anything to add to my little rant or if you agree or disagree, I'm going to get to everybody's comments uh, after this all gets recorded. But I, I, I really would appreciate your insight on this because it, I, I know that the community that we have here is really, really positive, And I don't think that there's um, any sort of bias or sexism or, or, or racism or any of that happening here. Um, but I will want to continue to really, really push positivity and exactly what I talked about. So um, with that news story comes my opinion, and I would love to know what you guys think in the comments down below, or like I said, tweet at me. Next up in huge teaser news, the Chef's Table Pastry uh, show, it's going to be a they're very similar to how they did uh, Chef's Table France, it's going to be called Chef's Table Pastry, is going to be a thing. And it on April 13th is when that drops, and I'm super pumped for it, right? So Momofuku Milk Bar's Christina Tosi is involved for sure. No word on who else is involved yet, but I feel like Chef's Table is one of those shows that even if you hate it, if you hate the story, you hate the way that they portray the chefs, you still watch it because David Gelb's cinematography and directing skills are so good that it's just a feast for the eyes, and doing pastry as a highlight means we're going to see a ton of sugar and whipping and time-lapse baking and fruit and chocolate and bread action, and that just sounds super entertaining. I love watching that stuff. So I'm currently really enjoying um, Altered Carbon on Netflix right now. Is anyone else watching that show? Anyone in pastry listening right now? I know there was some love from uh, Jeannie Kwan's episode from some of the Pastry Chef fam. Uh, she just got engaged, by the way, so shout out to Jeannie Kwan and Tim for that. Congratulations. Uh, but that's that story. That is, uh, we don't know anything more there. Uh, it's getting more and more, um, trailer comes out initial amount of hype because social media closes that gap. You don't need so much time to spread the word. And then it just drops, right? Like that Cloverfield thing they did after the Super Bowl, they released a trailer during the Super Bowl. And after the Super Bowl finished it, uh, the movie dropped, 
which is crazy. So same thing with the solo movie, right? Like there's no longer a year span where we hype up movies. It's like something comes out and then it's like 10 weeks before it actually gets released. I think I thought that was a really interesting thing. So April 13th, that is uh, almost two months away and we will get Chef's Table Pastry. Next up in You Can't Trust Anyone news, uh, Avec and Blackbird, two restaurants in Chicago, are in the news because one of their employees embezzled almost $610,000 from two restaurants over the past 10 to 20 years. It's not really super specific in the article, but this news is just coming out now, right? But Paul Kahn, who is the chef and owner of both of these uh, establishments, figured this out back in August of 2017. So they fired Renee Johnson, the bookkeeper for both restaurants. She apparently put forth $10,000 of her own money back in 1997 to help open Blackbird, which is where that kind of 20-year figure comes into play. Uh, and the article from the Chicago Tribune adds, quote, The Avec and Blackbird partners declined to answer questions on the record regarding Johnson's access to customer credit card information, end quote. Lols. Well, I've definitely eaten at uh, Avec and Blackbird over the past 10 years, uh, so hopefully my credit card information is safe. But they are both fantastic restaurants if you want a really good Michelin lunch. Blackbird does three courses for, I believe, under $40, if that's still a thing for them during the weekday, during the work week. Um, it is insanely good. Overall, it's really, really sad to see, right? If you break it down... Uh, hypothetically, let's just say between 10 and 20, we break, we split it down the middle and we just say 15 years, uh, and divide that figure that she stole, that is $40,000 a year. And in a restaurant group that's doing upwards of millions in revenue per year, that's just over $3,000 a month, uh, that is just hidden, I, I'm, I'm using air quotes, hidden somewhere by your bookkeeper, um, and that's personally really easy to hide, right? Like she's essentially probably doubling her salary in that in that respect. Not, I, I don't know how much she made, but um, an extra three thousand dollars a month is, is quite a bit. But still, I don't want to downplay this. Uh, this is seriously bad to have this stuff happen, especially when you're outsourcing that kind of stuff. Um, I'm a firm believer that the chef should not do everything. I'm not here to tell you to be this cynical person either and assume that everyone is stealing your money or your ingredients or your chef coats, but uh, you just have to be prepared and get ahead of it and show uh, and, and show that you at least have knowledge of the books, that you know how to read a P&L, that like, you don't have to be the best at it, but understand food cost and inventory systems and budgeting, and it's just one way to protect yourself. Uh, knowledge is power. It, it, that, that's my one takeaway from this story. Uh, that's it. So next up, and a really, really fascinating article uh, for someone like me, uh, Eater did a piece covering shoppable restaurants. So what is that? Uh, the rest, the idea is relatively simple. It is a space where you come to eat, but there's also a retail element of it all. So you can get your chicken liver mousse on a really nice ceramic plate, and then you can actually go up to a little cash register and buy two or four or six of those plates before you leave, right? So if you're into restaurant design porn, there's a really beautiful uh, site from Roman and Williams, which is one of the firms that they reference in the article that I linked up. Um, you should definitely check that out if you're into the the, the restaurant design, um, light fixtures, booths, uh, ceiling, uh, floor tiles, walls, um, 
But the model uh, of this kind of shoppable restaurant extends further into include education. So, quote, Jensen Architects, a whole ecosystem within the 5,000-square-foot building uh, that they're talking about in this article, includes a restaurant, an upstairs classroom, and an event space. They also It also includes a market with prepared foods and cookware, a coffee bar, and a fermentation bar. There's everything from garden tools to charcuterie. Events and classes are another way that Cindy Daniel, who is the owner of the space, integrates commerce where experiences and knowledge are the product for sale. These offerings and the tools and objects customers can see on both the shelves and the kitchen set visitors up to make a purchase in the market, end quote. So overall for me, this is successful for two reasons. This entire shoppable restaurant model is successful for two reasons. One, because consumers, foodies, uh, love souvenirs, especially when they're traveling from out of town uh, to their, when they're going to their favorite restaurants, right? Like I have a t-shirt from this restaurant called Yardbird in Hong Kong that I went to just because it was there and I had a really, really good time and I wanted something to remember it because food is so, food disappears, right? Like you eat it and then it's done and then it's over. To have something tangible that you can take with you uh, where you can say like, uh, yeah, this plate or this coffee mug is from this place in Sydney where we went and we had the most amazing time. That is attractive to consumers right now. And we saw it with the huge uh, t- take home that Noma had when they sold all the stuff from their old space. They made hundreds of thousands uh, on that de- on on that auction that they did. And thing number two, why I think this is successful, um, it makes it seem so much more valuable because you can see that these places are actually using the products that they're selling to you. And it's kind of like uh, this in-person review, uh, right? Like it's saying like, if a pro restaurant is using this, it has to be good effect, right? Like there's a ton of thought and work that goes into sourcing plates and silverware and everything that goes into a restaurant. So why not capitalize it even more by offering it for purchase, right? Like it helps the pottery lady. It helps the restaurant. It helps the consumer. It's such a win-win. And it's a model that I see kind of totally steamrolling over the Williams-Sonomas and the Sir Latobs of the world if they don't adapt and at least test this idea in a location somewhere. Uh, and when I say test the idea, I mean they supply all of the products and they either, you know, they should see this news and jump on partnering with either one of the design firms mentioned in this article or they should partner with a chef or they should partner with a restaurant group somehow because consumers are ready for it, right? The Eataly's and the Starbucks Reserve Roasteries and the, the they show that the shop and eat model works. Uh, but that's just my two cents. Uh, I just want you to quote me in five years when it, 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 it happens one way or another. So next up in definitely I didn't see it coming news, Google is going to the market and they're just going to buy the whole market. Yes. Chelsea Market, the 1.2 million square foot building, is in contract to be purchased for a cool $2 billion. Not a lot of other news uh, on that. It will apparently, quote, keep the status quo, end quote, on the retail side of things. So none of the mainstays, the shops and uh joints that people love are going to be leaving, but literally going back to the previous story and even thinking back to my trip to Atlanta the other day, they have a, um, in Atlanta, they have a complex called Pont City Market, and it's just filled with food vendors and wine bars and retail stores and cafes. No doubt, uh, 
it will compete with other big entities like Amazon with their new Go store and with Whole Foods and Apple with their store, like their electronic stores too. Google has a lot to gain from a brick and mortar location. I don't know if they're going to actually infuse Google the brand into the location in some sort of way, if there's going to be a Google store or, or, or something like that. But Google has their hands in so many buckets, it's really, really hard to predict what the main goal would be with a purchase like this. But it's just cool to see uh, one of the big five companies buy up a mainstay like Chelsea Market. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens with it. Um, it's just news that I wanted to cover because I have no doubt we will update. We will have an update on this story uh, later. Uh, who knows? I don't know. It, like I said, it's still in contract, so we don't know exactly when that deal will go through. And like I said, it's a beloved place in New York City, and so they aren't really going to be that okay with Google kind of like stripping it down to nothing and then rebuilding it into something. Um, but that's just my two cents. I just want you guys to be aware of it. Um, that's all I have on that story. Next up, and a question from you folks. I'm going to um, take a sip of the uh, Americano. So this is something that I'm really enjoying doing at the end of the episodes where I take a question. You guys send me DMs all the time. I have no problem with it. I don't want to uh, d discourage it all at all because I do love uh, answering your questions and having you guys trust me and having you guys um, get some value from me. Um, and I will always ask you before I share whatever you DM me or email me or Facebook messenger me, don't stress about me, like, all of a sudden receiving, uh, comments from people online. I will always ask you before I share any of your questions, but this is a kind of thing that I'm trying to tack on at the end of the stories right before the new, uh, non-industry show so that, um, I can give back to you guys and I know that a lot of the answers that I'm giving to your questions will hopefully, um ripple out and affect more of you than just the person, the individual that I answer it for. So this comes from alborz.z on Instagram. He says, hey man, just found your YouTube channel, immediately became a fan and started following you. Um, love that I'm making cooking videos. Uh, I was an engineering student and a server and just recently decided to follow culinary arts as a professional career. I needed more insight on the daily life slash work of professional chefs and your cooks. And I got to say, I found your channel very, very helpful. If you could talk a little bit more about what the daily chef, daily life of a chef is like, and also a little bit more about my early myself earlier in my career. One of the biggest reasons that I didn't follow cooking sooner was that I always saw that cooks and chefs, especially early in their career, work endless hours and don't even get paid enough for it. So, um, a lot of you are cooks. A lot of you are new cooks. A lot of you are new to culinary school. So a little bit of background on that. I said, uh, I'm going to read my answer first and then hopefully elaborate on it a little bit for you guys as well. So I said, it's definitely a thankless job. I had the luxury of having my parents help me with my education. So I was able to afford to work for zero to little money at the beginning of my career. And that's one of the reasons I staged all the time, right? Because I, I knew that I wasn't going to have any college debt. So I wanted to work my face off as much as I could uh, while everything was covered, right? So all of the cliche advice of needing to be humble and not be in it for the money, especially with fine dining, is totally true. And it's one of the reasons why I'm pursuing content and other ways to drive financial success because it's a lot of work for not a lot of payoff. Time is valuable to me, and I personally don't want to spend it slaving away in a kitchen. So just starting, you have to work for free to gain those skills. It's up to you how long that lasts and the kinds of mentors you are able to build relationships with. So that was my answer for him. 
Um, hopefully, uh, it brought him some value. He liked my comment. Um, so that is my that is the short that was the short answer. The longer answer is you need to uh, a daily life is. Um, maybe it's better to start with when you get to work because that's when the um, cycle starts, right? So typically, uh, let's say starting when I was at the French Laundry, right? We would start at, um, start time was at 12. We would start at 12 every day. Um, you would always show up an hour early because you could, that was the soonest that you could clock in was one hour before and you always wanted to make sure you were set up on time. So we would show up at 11. Uh, 11 would go until 3 you would prep until about three. And the first beginning stages of your day is always like gathering your ingredients, going over your prep list, talking with your station partner, um, checking your mise en place from the day before if you have any, um, asking any questions to the sous chef about techniques for the day. Uh, then you prep. 3.30 or 4 o'clock, I think, was staff meal. A lot of us would prepare staff meal. Every single station would prepare something for staff meal and then put it all up at the same time. Uh, you would always eat staff meal on your station. We um, There was a couple times when we would eat staff meal outside, but it wasn't very regularly because you were always kind of in the weeds. But then you have service. Service starts at 5 or 5.30. Um, then you cook from then until usually the last tickets would come in at 10 or 10.30. Um, after the last tickets go, uh, the last dishes would probably get from savory side, which is where I was, would probably get sent out at like 11, 11.30. And then after that, you would start to clean. So then cleaning would happen from 11.30 to probably 12.30. You break down for about an hour. And then we would sit down and we would write the menu for the next day. So we had menu meetings every single day. The menu changed every single day. So all the, pretty much all the mise en place you made was for that day only. And whatever you made was either for out-of-place stuff the next day, whether it was for allergies or um, uh, weird dishes that chef wanted to put on the menu but we would rewrite the menu every single day. So that would start at around midnight, 1230, and it would go for about an hour. So we'd have to go through all nine, uh, all, you know, uh, pastry would stay the same. So we would change probably like seven courses out of the menu. Um, and then that would end at around 1, 1.30. And then I would drive home. I had about a 15-minute drive back to Napa from Yachtville. So I would get to bed at around 1.32 every night and then I would wait I would try I would try to get eight hours of sleep and I would wake up at around uh nine ish depending on what time and then you start it all over again so you wake up at nine um you have your breakfast you work out if you can uh you kind of sit on your phone watch read the news whatever you do in the morning um from 10 and then right at 11 you gotta kind of be back at work so Totally. There is not a lot of time. There is not a lot of, um, it is endless hours. I was getting paid eight twenty-five an hour. You do get overtime on top of that. So that definitely helps because you're clocking, uh, insane hours during the week. But, um, I hope that was a, a little a bit of an insight into what a day looks like. Um, it's also a lot of time on your feet. It's a lot of, uh, talking with a lot of tempers. There's a lot of emotions involved. Um, so you totally have to be aware of that when you're starting. And as long as you're okay with that, as long as you're hungry and that's what you want, you're going to be fine um, because you, you just have to be able to not socialize. You have to be able to not, I mean, some people get around it by doing things like drinking and going out and whatever. I personally couldn't. Uh, it's sound, like I'm even exhausted just talking about that day. Uh, so to do it either under the influence or inebriated or hungover or whatever, just sounds like a big headache for me. But, uh, 
yeah, I really hope that uh, gave you some insight into what that looks like. Um, I hope I answered the question earlier in the career. I would go through spurts. You know, you kind of like you put that work week in for five days and then one day out of the weekend, if you get two days off, is usually spent sleeping for a long part of the day, right? Like you sometimes go out with your friends and have a beer and then you um, pass out and you sleep to like two in the afternoon. You wake up, you eat something, uh, and then you go right back to sleep again at like 9 p.m. That totally happens. It's totally a thing. Uh, I've been there. But uh, yeah, that's... I did it for a long time and you have to be okay with it and you have to be, you don't have to be. That's the thing is that if you can get enough skills, um, and that was one of the hacks that I did. I went to Norway to this restaurant that was doing food that was very similar to 11 Madison Park and Per Se and uh, any of the three stars in Paris. And because the team was so small, I immediately got thrown on the hotline and I made it to Meat Station in four months, and I made it to Sous Chef 10 months after that. So I was able to do that, and that process, that kind of 14-month process, would have taken me probably four to six years at a restaurant like the French Laundry because it was so competitive. So it's not to say that you exactly have to spend years and years working like that if you're able and that's one of the reasons why I ended it with um, it's up to you how long that lasts and the kind of mentors you are able to build relationships with because you can do it faster you don't have to spend all that time Um, there is a certain amount of time that has to be hit where you're putting in those 10,000 hours you're learning the knife skills you're learning what it's like to talk to your station partner on the line um that is definitely there, and if you don't have that drive right off the bat, um, it is going to take a little bit longer. Also, if you include drinking and doing stupid stuff at the beginning of your career, that's also going to make it take longer. But again, if you're okay being a line cook until you're 35, that's fine. If you want things to move a little bit faster, there are ways around it. And I would love to go into that a little bit deeper, but I've spent a lot, not enough time on this question So thank you. Thank you um, for sending your question. I hope it brought value to at least a few of you. But I want to get into our non-industry story of the week. The story that I wanted to highlight, just because I think it's important to get uh, out of the industry bubble, to kind of take a breather to explore other industries. It's really easy for me to dive down the rabbit hole of cooking and kitchen life. Uh, But I certainly got a lot of inspiration that way when I would have those days off. That's how I would spend them. But uh, two things that I wanted to cover. The Falcon Heavy launch yesterday was insane. You've no doubt watched that already if you have any interest in anything Elon Musk or space related. But the biggest thing that I got excited about um, since the last show was the trailer for Solo, a Star Wars story. No doubt a shock for a lot of us. I wasn't prepared for that news, but it seems like the franchise is now in a really, really good cadence. So they will do episode blank, followed by a Star Wars story, followed by another episode blank. Um, So that kind of keeps us fans spending money, spending our money, and it also keeps uh, them making movies while we're all kind of interested in Star Wars and while it still holds such a special place in all of our hearts. So I, I, I actually do have a third tack on story, and I mentioned it already. Altered Carbon on Netflix is dope. If you haven't started watching it already, it's like Blade Runner meets CSI meets Great Gatsby. 
in a weird way, and it's really, really good so far. I'm three episodes in. Um, I binge-watched three of them last night when I got done editing a, a video, so I'm really enjoying it. Uh, so for you sci-fi nerds like me, uh, I really hope you check out Altered Carbon if you haven't already. So with that, this has been episode 51 of The Emulsion. Thank you so much for listening. If you have stories that you want covered on next week's show, um, may or may not be my interview with Spencer, he, a 13-year-old chef out of Minneapolis who's doing pop-ups already. Um, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag The Emulsion so I can find them. Or if they are new stories, I will try to weave them in. Otherwise, I will just... Uh, leapfrog them to episode 53. So subscribe if you aren't already, if you're watching on YouTube or on iTunes or on the Google Play Store. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving me a five-star review on iTunes if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I appreciate your ears, so thank you. Thank you so much. My name is Justin Kana. Have a good one.